opportunity for a take a little trip this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but it helps me to orient kind of where we are in the bigger flow of this 11-week series. Um, this is week five, and what we've done so far, in addition to this sort of a general introduction where we're headed, is we spent three weeks looking at the, the idea of this conflict metaphor between science and faith. And so it pops out in a whole series of covers from Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, all kinds of magazines, book titles. Um, and hopefully what I think came out of that is the realization that there is actually not a fundamental conflict between science and faith. They operate in a different arenas. Uh, now, if you push science into something called naturalism and start making some unscientific claims about science, then we do have conflict. What we want to talk about today, though, is we're going to shift a little bit, go a little bit different direction, and what we want to do for the next three weeks is look at some of the breathtaking developments that have happened in the realm of science. And again, we cannot deal with everything, but we picked a few to deal with. Uh, what I want to focus in is a particular area of physics. Uh, now, I say this as a guy who dropped physics in college, okay? Uh, <laughs> I don't like the math part, but that's not, that's not where we're going. We want to look at how these developments have affected the conversation between science and faith, uh, and also in terms of what they mean for how we view the world. Uh, a disclaimer, remember I said the first week, I am not a scientist. Uh, folks, I am not a physicist. Now I say that with a little fear and trepidation because normally at Highland Park Methodist Church, you throw a rock, you hit four what? Lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's just the, that's just the Democrat and a, and a couple of doctors and a ricochet, okay. Um, and here the last few weeks, we've had a plethora of people with a science or technical background. We have had multiple physicists, one of whom I'm glad is not here today because he's one of the outstanding physicists to come out of Scotland in several years. And he normally sits right over there, and I'm looking, thank God he's not here today, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have to explain. So we're not doing math. So if you're like me and physics is not your forte, don't worry about that. That's, we're not crunching the numbers here. What we want to do is to see if we can grasp some of the fundamental concepts that are flying around there that kind of lie behind the math. Uh, we want to get the big picture of what is happening in the scientific world and what it means. Uh, we want to see if we can get the implications because there are folks, there are profound implications what we're learning about the universe in recent years. Uh, how we view reality and how, it, that, how that new understanding impacts the whole conversation between science and faith. If you follow this stuff, you know this conversation is showing up in a lot of science magazines, okay? Not just religious magazines. So there's a lot going on. This is one of several science magazines I subscribe to. What I like about this one is it's, it's not overly technical, and it tends to give you a lot of information on a, well, a little information on a lot of topics. Uh, the October 5th issue of this year has a question, and the question is this, what in the heck is reality? Now that's coming from the scientific community. You would think by 2012 we might know. There's a lively debate within the scientific community about what is real and what is this discussion, oops, 
The key to talking about this topic is to have someone knows what they're doing in the technical community. Okay. <laughs> Jackson, thank you. Uh, actually, it's the electrical engineers that, that run the planet, right? Okay. So, here's big picture. In the last century, we have witnessed nothing less than a tectonic shift, a fundamental shift in the way that we understand the nature of the universe, what is real, and what is not real. We, many of us, were raised in what's called the modern view of reality. This is the view of reality that kind of came of age as Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, it's one that a lot of people still uh, deal with, but that view of the universe has given way to another view. And it is a fundamentally different view. And it's that view that we want to look at today and for the next two weeks. It's a view that, according to a lot of people, even within the scientific community, depends on what branch of science, but particularly in physics, astrophysics, astronomy, places like that, are much more supportive of theistic faith than you might imagine. So much so that there's a relatively large number of people who've moved from the academic world as physicists, as astrophysicists, and have taken the collar and have become priests, particularly in the Episcopal Church, which is interesting because a lot of this is actually going on in England. There's a profound irony here because while some today, and we've talked about the new atheists, they're you know, examples, they're not the only ones, who continue to attack religion and faith and do so in the name of science, the very science their views are based on is no longer believed to be valid by scientists. That's an interesting place that we find ourselves in today. They're, they're operating out of outmoded view. The very foundations of naturalism have been undermined by debel developments within the scientific world, particularly in the realm of physics. So before we go down this road, today's topic is Einstein and his theories of relativity uh, and the tectonic shift that that produced in terms of how we view the world. We might want to take just a moment and, and look at what was the worldview like before Einstein, which, by the way, is still a worldview that many people operate out of. Operate out of. So we want to take a listen real quick at this. Why is this important? Well, Newtonian physics gave birth to something that is called the modern scientific worldview. By the way, this is not the same as science. The modern scientific worldview and science are two entirely different things. They're not the same thing. And many of the principles that are held by the modern scientific worldview would not be embraced by Newton. For example, Newton was a firm believer in God. But the modern scientific worldview is often held to be kind of an atheistic worldview. It has its roots in science. It grew out of science, but it developed for several hundred years. So today, you're going to hear terms like the Newtonian worldview or the scientific worldview. That's what we want to look at. This is a worldview that dominated both within the scientific community and the larger culture for several centuries, and for good reason. It worked. Say what you will about Newtonian physics, it works, okay? It very accurately and adequately explains the universe and how the universe operates, at least in the day-to-day -day sense that most of us would work with. 
Uh, this Newtonian worldview had several distinctive aspects. And by the way, these are immensely relevant for a discussion between science and faith. This is the stuff that Einstein is going to undo. Okay, that's the backdrop. Uh, and this view shapes how we view what is real and what is possible. It's even had a, uh, an impact on people's faith because this worldview has made for many people, and I'm not sure how many, but at least for some, who believe that faith is either incompatible with science or at least it's difficult to put together. First of all, this worldview that Einstein is going to undermine was dualistic. Now, let's be real clear. Not in the Platonic sense. Now, Plato had this idea that there were two realities. There's the material, physical reality, and there was the spiritual reality, and he particularly would identify that with mind or with reason, and we might toss in the word spirit. That's, that's the Platonic view. And the, that view was very, very common until, until modern science. But in this sense, the Newtonian view, the modern scientific worldview, made a distinction. And it separated. The dualism is that it simply separated science from the non-scientific. It separated the material from the non-material. It separated the, the empirical from the non-empirical. Newtonian mechanics explained the material universe but made no reference at all to non-material or outside influences and causes. Here's the premise. We can explain everything that we need to explain about the universe simply from being inside and in the natural laws of the universe. We don't need to import an outside concept like God or the spiritual or the demonic or angelic or anything like that. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is what's called methodological naturalism. This is simply science limits itself to the empirical. It is not concerned with or involved in other stuff. Not saying the other stuff isn't real, just doesn't care. Now, in this view, the universe is what's called a closed system. There is no beginning. There is no end. There is no beyond. There is no outside. Consequently, there's no trans, super, meta, and what's the other word we use for that? Spiritual. Everything is inside. It is infinite ever since, even though it's closed. It's all-inclusive of reality. The universe is self-contained. It is self-explained. The universe just is. It's all there is. It's everything. Universe, literally. You don't need God. You don't need any other non-natural reality to explain the universe. Everything can be explained naturally. So, Occam's razor, right? You don't need to import a more elaborate explanation if the simple explanation simply works. Now, the world before Newton was a very, very different world because the spiritual and the material were commingled. They were not separated in any meaningful sense. God was viewed as being active in the world. God was seen as the cause of much that was out there. For example, we have something called miracles. What are miracles? Miracles are understood as God being active within the material world doing something. Or my favorite, that remember your insurance policy? And other acts of God. You know, 
Storms, earthquakes, anything bad, get God gets credit for. I think that's a little rude myself, but that's okay. <laughs> Second, this, this worldview is materialistic. Everything in the natural order is made of stuff. Atoms. Even though, by the way, there was no conclusive evidence that atoms existed until when? Anybody know? 1905. One of the four papers that Einstein wrote in the miracle year. We believed in atoms for hundreds of years. No empirical data whatsoever to that. But the belief was the universe is made up of stuff, of material. <coughs> Reality is physical. There's no non-material, there's no spiritual reality, at least not in the sense that's relevant for science. And you can take that two ways. Either one, science doesn't care, which most scientists would say, or the other is, well, if it's not this, then it can't be anything. It doesn't exist. Third, it's deterministic. Nature and the material could be explained by something called cause and effect. Okay, real simple. We've got predictable laws. We've got Newton's laws. You, you remember Newton's three laws of motion, right? The apple hitting him on the other that kind of stuff. And then he had the universal law of gravity. The idea being that the universe operates and there's some certain fundamental principles, certain laws. They always hold. This is the way the universe holds. Cause and effect explains everything. Theoretically, this is theory, Theoretically, from this view, if you could go back to the beginning and you knew what was there, what direction it was headed, and with how much energy, you could then calculate forward everything that happened in the universe through eternity. That's the concept, cause and effect. There's no outside interference. Everything simply, you know, it's like one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball, hitting another billiard ball, going on down. Um, and that explains everything there is. This spilled over in a little later to biology and evolution so that we find ourselves in a situation where there's no such thing as free will and there's no purposeful action. It's Presbyterian heaven, okay? <laughs> Everything is predetermined. It simply flows. It simply rose. Okay. Fourth, it's mechanistic. The universe is viewed as a machine. So you remember the, the clock metaphor, which goes back hundreds of years, but basically the universe is a big clock. So, so that if there's a God, which would be argued back and forth, then God may have wound the clock up, but then God set the clock down. And what does the universe do? It just clicks. And God does not interfere. There's no connection there. And this produced a form of religion called deism, which was the religion of many of the founding fathers of our Constitution, which is why we have separation of church and state. Space and time. These were viewed as absolutes. Matter moves through the medium of space and time. So that thinking that worldview dominated for about four centuries the turn of the 20th century 1900 this is accepted thinking both within the scientific academic communities and probably most educated people out there this would be how they view reality uh, it's the, s the worldview used by some to assert that science is by definition reductionistic and atheistic and that it is opposed to faith. Now, in the last century, a little transition here, we've learned that this Newtonian worldview, which served us well for centuries, no 
longer explains what we know of the universe. We live in a fundamentally different universe. In 1900, 1905, when Einstein writes his work, we do not know that there's more than one galaxy in the universe. And we have no empirical evidence that atoms exist. Okay? I mean, that's the kind of transition that we're talking about. As a worldview, classical Newtonian uh, physics uh, doesn't work, or here's a little bit more accurately. Classic Newtonian physics does work in a limited area. It just happens to be the everyday area that you and I live in. It works pretty well there. But there's places where it didn't work. And a couple of these popped up, and by the way, this is the kind of stuff that Einstein began to go after. For example, Summer Large, isn't that a great little drawing? What the heck is that, okay? The orbit of Mercury. The orbit of Mercury was a problem for Newtonian physics. The closest point, uh, perihelion, big technical term, the closest point to the sun progressed. So that as Mercury grows around the sun, it wobbles off and it produces a daisy. It's pretty. But according to Newton's laws, not only should it not happen, it could not happen. So somewhere, Newton's laws were not accounting for everything. Let's go small. Atoms. Why the heck are they stable? According to Newton's laws, that should take energy in a system, right? Now, what's going to happen with any body orbiting anything in the universe? Sooner or later, the energy will wind down and it'll spiral into moons, crash into planets. Or in the case of our moon, because of other forces at work, our moon is a little further away each day, and eventually our moon will fly away. What you don't expect is stable. Atoms, apparently, exist billions of years and don't lose energy. According to Newton's laws of motion, can not happen, which means Newton's laws of motion do not encompass everything. So the Newtonian worldview, this was known in the late 1800s, begins to fall apart. It falls apart at the very small, the subatomic. It falls apart at the very large, solar systems and beyond. It falls apart at the very fast. You know Einstein's work. What happens when you approach the, the speed of light? Every known law in the universe under Newton's goes out the window. Okay, and things we'll talk about in a minute. And they're very powerful. In the presence of intense gravity, Newtonian physics disintegrates. So the very large, the very small, the very fast, and the very powerful, the boundaries, Newtonian physics does not work. That is what has produced a fundamental shift in understanding. It begins a century ago, and it begins with the work of Albert Einstein. The year is 1905. Any of you heard of the miracle year? Okay. Uh, for those of you who have not heard, buckle your seatbelts, okay? <coughs> this is a 26-year-old unknown patent clerk who has no standing in the academic community anywhere in the world. So if he submits a paper, they're going to go, Albert who? Never heard of the guy, okay? This is the miracle year. He's 26 year old, years old. He submits either four or five, depending on who you write. We're going to go with four. Uh, four papers that fundamentally alter 
how the universe is perceived, not just by him, but by all. And it, it, that any one of these would be a life's work. The first is the paper of photoelectric effect. Now, I know that Jackson knows what that is, and anybody in electrical engineering knows what that is, but for us, uh, let's just simplify it. Part of this theory was that light appears to come in distinct packets. What would be the term in, in, uh, in Latin or Greek? Yeah, quanta, from which we get, you know, quantity of stuff. Um, this, contract, this contradicted the prevailing view that, that light was basically a waveform. Um, so the theory of light quanta is a very strong indicator of something we'll look at in two weeks called wave-particle duality. Let me break that down. There are waves. There are particles. They are entirely different things. But the math indicated that, in fact, they're both simultaneously. A flat-out contradiction of terms. This is fundamental to quantum mechanics. Hence, this paper lays the foundation for quantum physics. Just brushed it off one afternoon, okay? <laughs> this is the one he, he receives the, the, the Pulitzer or the, the Nobel Prize in physics for, not the one we normally think of. This is what he gets there. Second, Brownian motion. Didn't you like that little graphic from the Internet? <laughs> this is what Brownian motion is. If you suspend tiny little dust motes or infinitesimal things in a very clear medium of a fluid, and you get a honker big microscope and look at it, what you discover is that the little things floating are moving. And they're moving in a random kind of pattern. Now, the, the question any scientist is going to ask is what question? Why? Yeah, good scientific question. What makes them move and what makes them that? So, 1827, Robert Brown basically notices this. Einstein's paper in uh, 1905 gives us the math and the concepts to explain the motion. And by the way, one of the features of this paper is for the first time ever, we've got empirical data that atoms exist. What's knocking those little puppies around? Atoms, okay? He's just getting warmed up, by the way. And this math has real-world applications. Do you have a 401k? The computer programs that run Wall Street run on this math. Just a little footnote there, okay. Third paper, mass-energy equivalent. This is the one you've heard. What's the formula? E equals mc squared. The amount of energy in any given mass is that mass times the speed of light squared. Is that a lot of energy? That's a lot of energy, you know. Here's the, the theory. A particle, ma mass, matter, possesses energy simply because it exists as distinct from two other kinds of energy. Now, kinetic energy, we understand. That's a bullet, okay? You fire something fast enough, and part of the energy is in the, in the, is in the speed and the velocity of it. That's kinetic energy. Potential energy is like gasoline. There is energy in the chemical bonds, and if you disrupt the chemical bonds, you release energy. The third kind of energy, and by the way, this was unknown until Einstein starts cranking this out, is 
even if it's not in motion, there's no kinetic energy, even if there are no chemical bonds, so there's no potential energy, just existing, it has energy. Now today we understand that because if you split the atom, bang, the atomic bomb. Or if you take two helium ad atoms and shove them together intensely enough, you get the hydrogen bomb. All that energy is locked in there. That's what the third paper. So he lays the foundations for the atomic bomb and nuclear energy. He ain't done. 26-year-old patent clerk, unknown anywhere. Fourth paper, special relativity. This is the stuff that just gets fun. This deals with motion in special or limited circumstances. And what he's doing is he's going to keep it simple to keep the math, for him, simple. Uh, we're going to factor out acceleration or gravity. Uh, according to this theory, one piece of the theory again, the speed of light is not relative to the movement of the observer. What's the speed of light? 186,000 miles an hour. Okay. You're tr second. Correct. There's a big difference. <laughs> You're going forward at 1,000 miles a second. And you shine your light out in front of you. How fast is light going? 186,000 miles a second. Which means relative to you, it's going 1,000 miles a second less. Now imagine that you're traveling forward 185,000 miles a second. That's you. And you fly shoot the light forward. <coughs> what's the speed of the light? Relative to you, it's what? 1,000. See, light has a point beyond which it cannot go. It's fixed. Now, by the way, this was new. And if that's true, and it's actually been documented, of course, it has all kinds. It's like knocking one domino down. Here they go. It just rips. Okay, by the way, this is impossible in classic Newtonian physics. Don't ask me about the math. I don't know. I don't care, okay? I'll take Einstein's word and a lot of others. What it means is that time, distance, mass, and energy are all relative. They're not absolutes. Lots, everything's a big yin and yang. It kind of bends back and forth. Near the speed of light, you know this one, time dilates, slows down. We'll look at his, one of his thought experiments in a second. Secondly, space dilates. You may have seen on the Science Channel, things get flatter as you approach the speed of light, and energy converts to matter. That's not the Newtonian universe, and it's counterintuitive to what we thought. It means that both space and time can be distorted by speed, and gravity is hold that thought. We'll pick that up in a second. Time and space are not what we thought they were. They are not constant and unchanging. They are malleable. They bend and they can warp, which is interesting. This fundamentally changes the way we understood the universe. The mechanistic clockwork universe of Newton <coughs> just got busted. It's out the window. That's not the world we live in. And the way we looked at the universe for centuries is also beginning to unravel. You can see why... The year 1905 is known as the miracle year. Uh, ten years later, Einstein would produce the theory of general relativity. So we'll spend a couple minutes on this. Uh, general relativity is, to, is needed because there were some paradoxes in specific relativity. There's some things that did not make sense, did not compute. Uh, you heard of the famous twins paradox? The, the, by the way, this guy would, s would ride a streetcar 
and think. And he's looking back at the clock tower going, you know, as he's driving away. Well, what if, you know, and this is how he worked it out. Then he goes, crunches the math. Twins paradox. You've got twins. They're identical. One is traveling in space near the speed of light. This has to be a thought experiment because this is 1905 or 1915. You can't really do that yet. One's on Earth. According to time dilation, the twin on Earth will age twice as fast as the twin in space. Okay, that kind of makes sense until you think about it. Why isn't the reverse true? We're on Earth. Is Earth moving? We are. We're moving through space. We're in a galaxy. Is the galaxy moving? Moving through space. Our galaxy is in a cluster of ga galaxies. Are they moving through the universe? Well, wait a minute. How come the guy out there is aging slower than the guy here when the guy here may be even going faster given that we're going around the spinning globe, around the spinning solar system, in the spinning galaxy, and a cluster of galaxies moving through the universe. Okay, So something didn't fit, and he worked on this for 10 years. Um, why? What's going on? What's the difference? The answer to the paradox, he figured out, is in the thing that Einstein left out of special relativity, and that is acceleration. The only difference is that when somebody leaves the Earth in a rocket ship and they accelerate away, the difference is acceleration. Now hold that because we're going to get back to that in a second. Uh, the twin in space would age slower because the twin's accelerating relative to the twin on Earth. Acceleration is the difference. In other words, Einstein needed to take the special out of special relativity. He needed to factor in uh, acceleration. So general relativity is simply specific relativity reworked to include acceleration. Uh, special relativity has proven that matter and energy are 1 equals mc squared. General relativity produces an even more mind-blowing concept. Uh, space is not a vacuum, an emptiness. It is something. Space is as much something as atoms, light, or a field. Space is not simply the absence of stuff. Space itself is something that, uh, kind of like a big, big cosmic lump of jello. It can be twisted, contracted, stretched, space. And you, you've seen that, that, that analogy on TV, I'm sure. It's a dynamic field. Something that can interact with mass and energy. Something that can be warped, that can be twisted. Time is not a measurement. Time, it turns out, is also something. It's another part of the jello. Uh, time and space are not two different things. As Newton held, they are something new. And he simply called this space-time. There is no space without time. There is no time without space. They, in fact, make one reality. Throw in matter and energy into the mix. It's all one thing. This is the big fancy term is four-dimensional manifold. That'll send you scurrying. Okay. But four dimensions of one fundamental reality. It's this elastic medium. And jello is a good metaphor because things can be stretched. Things can be compacted. And if you, if you increase one thing, another thing goes down. And it kind of plays with it. Uh, they can even vibrate, we now know. So what is the universe? It's a dynamically integrated finite whole, not, as Newton thought, just a 
collection of parts that totaled up to the universe. Here's the last piece of it. And this, this, is, this is a mind blower. Turns out that this is also Newton's theory, I mean, uh, Einstein's theory of gravity. This is the famous elevator experiment. Again, he didn't do this, but he thought about it. You're in an elevator. And say the bottom falls out from under you. Ah! And down you go. What do you experience besides terror? <laughs> so it's so 3,000 floors tall. This is a long drop. What, what do you experience? Weightlessness. The absence of gravity. Acceleration and gravity are, in fact, two aspects of the same thing. Interesting. Um, that was, again, something brand new. Uh, in the falling elevator, gravity is neutralized. You experience weightlessness. Gravity is not a force. It's a field in space-time. It's part of this dramatic whole. Through gravity, everything becomes connected. Everything's relative to everything else. General relativity replaced Newton's law of gravity. It is Einstein's law of gravity. Can you see that we've just left and we wandered off into Alice in Wonderland? Okay. We're in a different view of the universe. Now, here's the pertinent question for today. What does any of this have to do with being Highland Park United Methodist Church? Fair question. I would say everything because in the post-Einstein world, mechanical naturalism, which is the thing we've been struggling with, simply falls apart. Reality is much more complex, much more dynamic. Einstein's work not only demonstrates this, it lays the foundations for some other stuff that we're going to take the next two weeks to talk about because it's fundamental here. And again, we're, we're in the realm of physics. First of all, Einstein's work lays the basis for quantum physics. And for people of faith, quantum physics may be, not may be, probably is the most exciting place think about the reality of God okay um, we'll look at that in two weeks also his work laid the foundations for contemporary cosmology and astronomy for example one implication of general relativity I did not know this but is the realization that the universe according to the formulas according to the equations the universe this is not nobody's ever observed this at this point but the math says the universe should not be static it should be expanding. It should be, the term is inflationary. It should be expanding like a balloon. Now, the equations indicated that, but was there any empirical evidence? Remember this guy? We have a big telescope up there with his name, Hubble. Okay? He is at, uh, he actually confirmed the general theory of relativity, and he did this at the Mount Wilson Observatory out in California. There's an effect known as the Doppler effect, also called redshift. You heard of it? Remember the train? Train comes before you, and it goes away. So if something comes toward you, the pitch goes up. If something goes away, the pitch goes down. In light, if pitch goes up, it goes to what color? Blue. As it's moving away from you, it sh shifts to a lower frequency, and that color is red. So you can look at the stars spectrographically, and you can tell, are they moving away from you or towards you? And guess where all they're all moving? Away. It's called a red shift, which proves 
the universe is in fact expanding, which Einstein's equations indicated should be the case. Uh, now, this is where we're hit next week. The research should lead us, uh, would lead us to the idea that the universe had a beginning point, the Big Bang. By the way, who saw that silly article about that representative this week? Jerk. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually in Congress on the Science Committee. That's a scary thing. Anyway, so we'll just get, this is the devil's work, he said. So we're going to get into the devil's work next week. But okay, Big Bang, and to dating the age of the universe, which they've now done. But by the way, according to many, many, many physicists, this opens to the, the possibility that the universe may have a supernatural cause. We want to look at that next week. It may also indicate the universe evidences design. Design implies designer. And that the design is so structured so as to produce life and consciousness, something called the anthropic principle. We're going to look at that next week. So next week, following up on the work of Einstein, we've now had a century to take his equations and play with them. We're going to look at astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, the Big Bang, the anthropic... Whatever. <laughs> 